Father, this morning we have recognized the need of your Spirit to fill us. We not only pray fall fresh on us, but Lord, we yield to you so that that can actually take place. And we acknowledge, O Heavenly Father, that you are thrice holy, that there is nothing in you that is defiled or impure. And we come today to worship and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, God come in our human flesh. So blessed, holy, glorious, triune God, one God manifested in three persons. We bow before you and call you holy, holy, holy. Open our eyes this morning that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We pray in the blessed name of Christ our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. There's a problem in the church. And it threatens to destroy us. It's not a new problem. A problem that is as old as time and as ancient as the church itself. And this problem is expressed, uncovered, revealed for us in the book of Acts, chapter 6. So let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. And while some of you may think I was talking about a specific problem threatening to destroy South Church, it is not a specific problem. It is a general problem with churches everywhere and in all time. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we read these words. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews also among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Let's stop right there. When you read through the book of Acts, it is interesting to note that the church born in chapter 2 experiences phenomenal growth. Verse 1 says, the number of disciples was increasing, but with this increasing positive multiplication of disciples is also the increasing possible problem of uh, of destruction, here of complaining. Interesting, as the church is growing, the complaints are multiplying. The devil does all he can to destroy the church. In chapter 4, it was through persecution when the Jews were actually arresting, the religious leaders were arresting the apostles. In chapter 5, it was corruption, where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. And here in chapter 6, it is distraction. If persecution doesn't work, then corruption is his goal. And if that doesn't work, then merely to get us distracted to the place where we as a church cannot do what we are called to do. Now this problem is somewhat unique in the first century because the church had gathered together in a tight space with many people 
sharing all of their goods. They were selling their assets and giving the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to those who had need. It was a temporary situation, but it was a very important part of the early church. And now we're told that there are Grecian Jews who are complaining against the Hebraic Jews because their widows are being overlooked. The word Grecian actually comes from the Greek word Hellenistic, and it is the word even chosen today in the land of Greece for their own country, Helena. These are people who probably spoke no Hebrew, deeply immersed in the Hellenistic or Greek culture. They probably lived most of their life abroad, but now for their final years have moved to the holy city, kind of like the modern Zionist movement, or even today as you see Russian Jews filling into the land of Israel. Apparently there were many who outlived their husbands, and so there was an abundance of widows in the city. Women normally live longer than men, but sometimes in cultures like this, where war was predominant, many people uh, were taken in war, and uh, so the abundance of Jews was evident, or widows was evident. And they were complaining. Now that's not very godly, is it, to complain? Uh, We're not supposed to complain. And yet this was a real injustice. So while the word means to murmur and complain, it was brought to the attention of the apostles, and the apostles said, hey, you're right. So sometimes it's okay to complain. You ever heard a pastor tell you that? Say, good, because I'm great at complaining. No, not complaining due to your own selfishness, not complaining due to your own sin or what you expect to get and don't receive. But when there is real injustice, voices need to be heard. And there was a problem. Now, the Hebraic Jews were Aramaic. They were resentful of those who had come into town taking their land and their places. They didn't like the refugees coming in. They discriminated against them because they were Hellenistic. And the Pharisees held these widows in contempt as second-class citizens. This is happening in Israel today. It's happening in America today. Pentecost had already taken place. The church was born. People were brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Genuine conversion had taken place. But prejudice does not die easily. And there were battles in the early church. The apostles were challenged. How would they deal with this? Would they continue to be distracted and try to do everything? Would they try to control it all themselves? Or would they say, we can't get involved in social work. We're just all about spiritual work. And receive the painful taunts of, so you think you're too good to wash dishes, to sweep a floor. (laughs) It's like whatever they do, they're going to be in trouble. There's no indication that they thought social work was inferior work, but they understood that if they got too involved in helping physical needs, they would neglect the spiritual needs. So what was the problem? Well, the word overlooked 
is mentioned in verse 1. Indeed, there was some degree of neglect in administration. That was part of the problem. Was it more than that? Was it prejudice, intentional favoritism? I think that is hinted at and also evident. But let me suggest to you that this problem would not have been solved if there weren't willing servants to step in. What I suggest is the, the problem behind the, the situation and story, the, the great problem that threatens the church then and threatens the church today is a scarcity of servants, of people who are willing to work hard so that the work of God will go forward of people who are willing to work hard and they're not concerned about who gets the credit. Servants. The Apostle Paul lamented in the book of Philippians chapter 2. He said, I hope to send Timothy to you. Timothy is one who is so unique, there's no one else like him. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And everyone else looks out for their own interests and not the interests of Jesus Christ. Here's the problem in most churches today. There are few people who look out for the welfare of others because they're more concerned about their own interests and they're not concerned ultimately, preeminently, about the work of Jesus Christ. John gives a similar, similar lament in 3 John Verse 9, when he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, remember that name? Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, is the old King James translation. A more modern translation says, he likes to put himself first. <laughs> he did not acknowledge our authority, John wrote, and because of that, he would not take in traveling apostles and welcome them in a hospitable fashion. So it's the lament, the, the lament of the Apostle Paul. It's the lament of the Apostle John. It was true in the first century. It's true in this 21st century. There's a scarcity of people who are willing to serve and aren't concerned about being first. And if those people don't step up, then the work of God is not going to go forward. Verse 12, or verse 2, excuse me. The twelve gathered together all the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And the word wait there is where we get our word deacon, and it simply means to serve. It would not be right for us to serve as deacons in the sense of focusing on the physical, to ne the neglect of the spiritual. So the plan was, verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. By the way, I suggest to you there is a wonderful insight here in 
into how churches should be run. There should be leadership that makes joint decisions with all the disciples. The 12 got together and made a proposal. They gathered, verse 2, all the disciples together, and the proposal, verse 5, pleased the whole group. There needs to be leadership, but it should not be a bunch of tyrants. And the church needs to respond and support. And I can tell you, by the grace of God, South Church has a healthy situation in this idea of church and leadership working together. But this was the plan. And so notice, the qualifications then are the fact that these individuals need to be full of the Spirit, and they need to be full of wisdom. I don't think you can be full of the Spirit without being full of wisdom. Unless the idea of being full of wisdom is the idea of also being practically minded. Because there are some people who are deeply spiritual who have a rough time in the real world. They're not practically, practically minded. And so these individuals have to be able to understand what it is to walk with God and they have to understand what it is to administrate a real problem among people themselves. And so this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose, verse 5, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, and Prochorus was also chosen, Nicanor, Timon, Parmeus, Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so the word of God continued to spread. The distraction and the problem, the physical issue, did not hinder the ongoing work of the gospel because everyone pulled together and the number of disciples in Jerusalem continued to increase rapidly and even, as a side note, a large number of Jewish priests came to the obedience of the faith. Now I say all of that almost by way of introduction to present to you a life that gives us an example of a servant. And he's the second one on the list in verse 5. His name is Philip. Stephen was chosen as the first, sometimes we call these individuals deacons. Indeed, they are servants, and we noticed already the, verse deacon, or the word deacon is connected in verse 2 to the listing of these individuals. Stephen is going to become the first martyr in chapter 7, but Philip's ministry is going to continue on in a very unique way throughout the book of Acts. And I think he becomes a wonderful example of what it is to be a servant. Now, I, I want to step back just for a moment and mention to you that verse 5 is a proposal that is based on the fact that these individuals are known. That these individuals are known uh, to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, verse 3 said. They have a reputation. So they're not chosen merely because they're popular. They're not chosen merely because... Uh, they are well-known, they've been around a long time, they have the most money. That's sometimes how we choose our leaders, sad to say. Leaders should be chosen because they're full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and 
their reputation is well known. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? That's a good question, isn't it? I think it means, as we've already noted, that you have some practical wisdom. There's some way in which your spiritual mindedness still keeps you involved and you are still some earthly good. There is this sense in which you are full of faith. That is mentioned in verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man who was full of faith. If you are filled with the Spirit, then your faith is strong. You believe the Scriptures and you're willing to trust them. When you're full of something, it means that there's no room for anything else, right? Sometimes we use that term in a derogatory fashion. Oh, you're full of it. And whatever the it is, is often very negative. You're so full of it that there's nothing positive coming out of you. But when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're so full of Him, there's no room for anything else. We could also go to other portions of Scripture and add to this list, like Ephesians chapter 5, that there is a strong influence in your life by the Holy Spirit. Remember the picture given by the Apostle Paul? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So as one is under the influence of wine, too much so, so that it affects their speech and affects their thinking and affects their walk in a negative way, So be under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that He affects your thinking and affects your speaking and affects your walk in a positive way. Also, if you're filled with the Spirit, get this, there'll be a song in your heart. That's Ephesians chapter 5. Once he talks about being filled with the Spirit, he says, now I want you to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a sense of a melodious life. By the way, the best witness in the world is like a song. Let your life be the melody. Let your words be the lyrics. And too often we jump to the lyrics. If I quote to you some lyrics from a song, they might sound rather dull, but put them together with an unbelievable tune like holy, 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 And not only do you have great lyrics, but you have a great tune. And that song lifts us all. Let your life be like a great song. The melody is the way you live. And what you say, the lyrics of the tune. And then also this idea of exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. That's Galatians chapter 5. When you are filled with the Spirit and under the influence then you express, what are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. Depends on what translation you memorize. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are nine of them mentioned. I'm not sure that list is exhaustive, but it covers most of the bases. Love and joy are evident in the person who's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Let me also add that these people who were chosen are not pros, they're laymen. 
I don't like the term, but it may be the best to describe what I'm saying. They're not in a paid position. They're not giving themselves to a particular vocation. They are simply normal saints, members of the church. And Philip is one of those. By the way, I could uh, commend to you another servant who is a female by the name of Phoebe. Uh, Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. You may just want to jot it down. You can study it later. But Paul starts out that wonderful chapter by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. The Greek word there is diakonos. A female deacon who is a servant in the church of Sencrea. And the only reason I'm not preaching on Phoebe today is because that's the only verse that talks about her. And I can't make up anything else. But there are several verses that talk about Philip. So what we're talking about as we talk about Philip, uh, to a large degree, can also be applied to uh, any female as well. So what about Philip? There are actually three different Philips in the New Testament. You've got Philip the disciple, who was one of the first guys called. Read, read about his calling in John chapter 1, beginning about verse 43. And he goes and he talks to Nathaniel, and he's right away witnessing and bringing other people in. That's not the guy we're talking about, Philip the disciple. The second one is Philip the Tetrarch, the brother to Herod. Luke chapter 3, verse 1 talks about him. He was the Tetrarch over uh, Iturea and Trachonitis. But we're not talking about the king or the Tetrarch, Philip. We're talking about a common guy filled with the Holy Spirit in the early church who was a model servant. So what happens when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, like Philip? Let me mention three things. You're going to serve others and meet their physical needs. That's what you're going to do. And by the way, meeting people's physical needs is extremely messy. Because you've got to get into their life. And they've got to get into yours. And we have too many walls built to get really involved in the lives of people. But when they chose these seven, I'm sure they said, Stephen, are you willing to do it? Yes. If chosen, Philip, are you willing to do it? Yes. It's going to be messy. It's going to be challenging. We'll do it. And the others said the same. By the way, I think it's amazing that the seven who are chosen all have Greek names. <laughs> and that's because it was the Greeks that were complaining. I don't know. If I were a Hebrew, I'd say at least choose three Hebrew names. But they didn't. It was going to be a very challenging job. Not a high-profile job. It was going to require humility. It was going to require some degree of diplomacy. And not the twelve. Not the 12 were chosen. Not the big three of the 12. There's no micromanaging here of the disciples. They give the responsibility to these individuals, and these individuals serve meeting their needs. And the very, very fact that we don't deal with the problem again immediately appears to tell us that they did a wonderful job. Meeting physical needs is one of the greatest needs in a church like ours. And I mean to tell you, we have some great servants in this church.
who serve all the time and you don't even know their names. We're going to try to do more faith stories so you hear about some of these people, but a lot of these people who serve don't want you to know about them. They're afraid they're going to lose their reward. They'd just soon be anonymous. But I love that humility. I question the person who says, I've been serving and I want to be recognized. Where's my trophy? Where's my picture? How come people don't know me? (laughs) John the Baptist said, I must decrease and Jesus must. That's the attitude of the servant. But I've only got Timothy, Paul said. He's the only one who's concerned about the welfare of others. Everyone's spending all of their time and energy on their own interests. Wow. This threatens to kill our church. If we don't continue to see people serving faithfully, ministering faithfully. So that's one of the first things we notice about Philip. He's introduced to us in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. He is full of God's wisdom and full of God's spirit and full of God's grace. Uh, I take that from verse 8. Stephen was a man full of God's grace and full of God's power. And it seems like Philip does the same thing. But let's move on to the biography of Philip. We go from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 8. And so if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to be a servant to meet people's physical needs, and you need to serve others by meeting their spiritual needs. That's Acts chapter 8. In chapter 7, I mentioned that Stephen, the first deacon, was martyred. And because of that, there was a great persecution. Chapter 8, verse 1, middle of the verse. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, that is the district around Jerusalem, and Samaria, that is the district north of Jerusalem or of Judea. It's the middle land of the land of Israel. And it's the land where the Samaritans lived, the half-breeds, the Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles and created a race that was greatly hated by the Pharisees and the Orthodox Jews. And Philip's not one of the apostles, so off he goes. And we pick up his biography in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria. You say, I thought you just said Samaria was north of Judea. It is, but remember this. Whenever you're studying Bible geography, everything is down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a mountain, so geographically you always go down even if you're traveling north. So he went from the city of Jerusalem down toward the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. Let me just highlight something very interesting. The word preached is used in verse 4. It's the word from where we get our English word evangelize. It's the word to share the gospel. In fact, someone said the word literally means to gossip the gospel. Now, many people are very good at gossip. They love to tell the juicy details. Have you heard? 
Oh, have I got something good for you? And they love to tell it, sometimes to hurt other people, simply because they want to be people in the know. They want to be the first to tell you. Has so-and-so told you already? Ah, I wanted to be the one to tell you. Wouldn't it be great if people felt that way about the gospel? Has someone already told you about Christ? Ah, nuts. I wanted to be the first to tell you. Hey, have you heard? This is really juicy. God loves you. And you're a horrible sinner. And Jesus wants to save you. Gossiping the gospel. That's what verse 4 is all, uh, all about. And who is doing this? Everyone except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Everyone else went out and gossiped the gospel. But Philip proclaimed, verse 5, Christ. And that's a different Greek word. It's the word that gives us the picture of a town crier who stands before people and announces news to the city on behalf of the authorities. And some people are called and chosen to be town criers, but everyone is called and chosen to gossip the gospel. And we won't go through all of chapter 8 because it's all about Philip, but let me just give you some of the highlights. He shared Christ publicly, and he shared Christ privately. He shared Christ publicly, as we read about in verse 5. He proclaimed Christ in the city of Samaria. Crowds heard him, verse 6. They saw the miraculous signs that he was doing. They paid close attention. Verse 12. And they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God. By the way, it's very interesting that that word preached is the same word in verse 4, to gossip the gospel. So Philip was proclaiming and he was doing one-on-one evangelism. He was proclaiming, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and people were being baptized. And so he was sent to a hated people, giving the wonderful message of the good news of Jesus Christ. But here's one of the most unique things about Philip. Look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they took over. <laughs> That's a paraphrase of what's happening right after that. The apostles came. How would you feel if you were Philip and you were preaching and revival broke out and the apostles came and said, now let's, we'll take it from here. Thank you very much. And Philip took a back seat. There's no sense of complaining here. And the apostles carry on the work that Philip started. He didn't say, I'm the founder of this church. I got it going. Who do you guys think you are? He said, I don't care who gets the credit as long as Jesus Christ is praised. That's a church. Robert Morrison, who was the great missionary, once lamented this about his mission. He said, the great fault of our mission is simply this. No one wants to take second place. Everyone is a diatrophies, and they want to be first. Does that ever happen in churches in the 21st century, or is this just an ancient problem? Enough said. Not only publicly is he sharing the gospel, he shares it privately. And here's the great story, beginning with verse 26, of Philip 
talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. We talk about this story almost every time that we uh, do a baptismal service. He's led by God from a hated people to a hated place out in the middle of the desert toward Gaza. And Gaza has always been territory controlled by the Philistines. And even today, it is a territory that is in much turmoil. Imagine you're experiencing revival in one place and God says, okay, now I want you to go to the desert to talk to one person. But he was flexible and sensitive to the Spirit's direction. That's a servant. I'm not in charge. God is. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And he goes and witnesses to a person of high position. The man who was in charge of all the money of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And he leads him to Christ. By the way, did you notice he had the same message? Chapter 8, verse 4, he preached Christ. Chapter 8, verse 35, he proclaimed Christ. Wherever Philip went, the message was this. Jesus Christ loves you so much, he died for your sins to save you. Confess your sins and you'll be forgiven and they'll be all washed away. He, uh, Kent Hughes calls Philip God's hitchhiker. As he goes down the road and he's picked up by the chariot and he shares the word of God. He had to reach over substantial barriers. He did it with the Hebrew and Grecian Jews and he did it in Samaria with the Jew and Gentile hatred to one another. And now he's doing it with a man even from a different race, most likely an African man, a man of high status. And Philip is there to share the gospel. Not only did he share the same message, but in each case, both got baptized. Did you notice that? And did you notice one baptism was public and another was private? One was in the city with a lot of people and the other baptism was on a desert road. I don't think the place is important. I think the proclamation, the identification with Christ is. And that's what happened. Now there's one third and final thing I want to say about Philip and his biography. He is a servant who served people in their physical needs. He is a servant who served people in their spiritual needs. And now finally, he is a servant who serves people in their, their emotional needs. Twenty years pass by, and we don't hear anything about Philip. He apparently made his way north, and then made his way west, and then went a little bit more north to the city of Caesarea, today called Caesarea Maritime. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 21. Caesarea by the sea, that's to distinguish it from Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northern part of Israel. And now the Apostle Paul, who has gone through wonderful missionary journeys and has had many people come to faith in Christ, is under persecution and arrest, soon to be arrested. He's under emotional turmoil, and the Bible tells us as, they were, as he was making his way back to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to be persecuted, knowing he was going to be arrested, because that's what Agabus the prophet told him, knowing that he was going to be 
most likely losing his life for the gospel. We read in verse 8, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, that's the seaport, and we stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. What seven? The seven we just talked about in Acts 6. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That is, they were teaching and sharing the gospel as well. Notice he's given the moniker the evangelist. And he's called one of the seven. So in chapter 6, he is a servant. In chapter 8, he is an evangelist. What about in chapter 21? He's a host. Now he's meeting the physical needs of the Apostle Paul, but he's also meeting emotional needs as well. Paul is probably wrung out from the taxing work of not only sharing the gospel, but having to deal with all of the persecution. By the way, being a servant is messy. Being a servant is risky. Being a servant is taxing. And yet Philip did all of this. He was willing to go anywhere, willing to speak to anyone, willing to do anything to advance the cause of Christ. And here he opens up his home and takes Paul in. Now Paul goes on to Jerusalem, gets arrested, and then when they take him, when he appeals to Caesar, they're taking him to Rome, he stops again at Caesarea for two years, and most likely Philip is there to welcome him again. Because that's what spirit-filled people do. They serve others, meeting their physical needs, their spiritual needs, and their emotional needs. Are you filled with the Spirit? If you're filled with the Spirit, it's going to show. Someone said a sure sign of someone who's carrying a full bucket is wet feet. A clear sign that someone is filled with the Spirit of God is that the overflow is a servant. And that's why we say, make me a servant. Humble and meek. Lord, help me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant like thee. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became a servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us to be true servants of Jesus Christ, who are willing to go anywhere and willing to speak to anyone and willing to do anything you call us to do, sensible, sensitive, and flexible, led by your Spirit for your glory. That's our prayer in Jesus' name.